Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Vegan Proteins Muscles by Brussels Radio. My name is Giacomo. And I'm Danny. This is our 49th episode. So we are back from the cruise, the vegan cruise, which some of you may remember we went on last year. We are actually recording this podcast two days before it's going to come out, so we're kind of back on track there, whereas the last batch of podcasts we did back in January and mid-February now, hopefully we're going to record the next batch of podcasts going forward. But the cruise was absolutely amazing. We also went to our friend's wedding in Disneyland. Which was pretty epic. I think on the whole, it was a super busy trip, and I questioned whether or not it would be worth it getting in, and then getting out and catching back... Catching up to real life, I still think it was worth it. It was kind of... We did have a really interesting bout of classic Danny bad luck when we got to Disneyland. No. So everybody in the wedding party was going to go into the Disneyland park the day after the wedding, but we had to literally... The wedding ended at like midnight, and we had to book it to Aruba to meet up with the ship in Aruba. Like We got on the cruise a few days late. So we decided to go to Disneyland a couple days early because neither of us have ever been. And it downpoured the whole time that we were there. <laughs> and when I would post about it, people would be like, well, duh, you moron, it's Florida. It rains all the time. And I was like, actually, this is Disneyland in Anaheim, like LA. It never freaking rains, but of course it rained the whole time we were there. Yeah, you brought the rain with you, and I think you single-handedly brought the rain to a good friend's wedding. So, I don't know, I think you're publicly admitting to thousands of people that you, uh, you know, you caused rain on somebody's wedding day in Disney, Danny. I don't know. The rain actually held off for, like, the 45 minutes of the ceremony, which was a beautiful ceremony. But Disneyland itself was so cool. I enjoyed it so much, and I we have so many childless adult friends who are like obsessed with Disneyland that I was like, I gotta see what this is about. But I was really, really skeptical and I walked away very impressed. Also incredibly vegan friendly as well, which I did not expect. Yeah, I think the coolest thing was we were at a, where we were at the pizzeria next to the, what was it, the Toy Story? Yeah, if you guys remember the Toy Story movie where they go to the pizza place with the little uh, aliens and the claw, the claw. We were at that pizza place. And we're walking around and you're like, there's no vegan options. And I'm like, I'm sure there is. You're like, Giacomo, like, don't bother people. And I'm like, but that's what I do. I bother people. So I went straight up to the chef. And you I'm like, sure do, baby. <laughs> I was like, hey, do we have any vegan options here? And they're like, well, I'm glad you asked. We have day in the back and we'll make a special vegan pizza just for you. And I'm like, see, Danny, it pays to open your mouth. And... But bottom line was like every like all the staff was very knowledgeable. Like you could throw the V word out, and every, whether they had options or whether they didn't, they knew where to point you to get something, and they were very familiar with veganism. Anyway, yeah. So I would say like food wise, Disney was very vegan friendly. And then so we went from one hyper stimulating place, Disneyland, and we flew immediately to Aruba to get on the vegan cruise ship, which is also. Super, super stimulating. And even though we got on late, we were still there for seven days. The cruise was 11 days this year. And it was just amazing. I think the food was even better than last year. Um, the crowd 
was, I mean, no matter what, on a cruise ship, the crowd, crowds on cruise ships are typically just kind of like an older demographic, which I have no problem with. But I know that some of the younger folks who went were like, wow, there's a lot of older folks on this cruise ship. Um, but I did notice from last year to this year that there were more younger people as well, um, which was kind of neat. It was just more of a mixed company uh, sort of cruise. But the talks were awesome. The ports were super cool. My mom came. Uh, which was amazing because I've never ever been on a trip with my mom in my life. So that was really neat too. And yeah, we got to teach a whole bunch of super successful classes. It was kind of funny. We were supposed to teach these bands classes, like resistance bands classes. And we got on the ship and we we're like, hey, where are the bands? And they were like, we don't have the bands. You have the bands. And we were like, shit, no one has the bands. All right, here we go. We're on a cruise ship and we have to teach a strength training class with no equipment. But we made it work. How? By using the towels as resistance. We did a lot of partner exercises using towels as sort of resistance bands, which sounds crazy, but it worked. Who needs barbells? Who needs dumbbells? Who needs resistance bands when you have towels, right? But no, it, it definitely did work. And outside of that, what I particularly enjoyed this year is we got to work on other things other than resistance training, which there's enough of on the cruise already, but I don't know, like mobility work and posture as it pertains to fitness is something that I feel is underrated. And I was really happy to be able to teach a mobility class. Your posture class went pretty well too, actually. Well, yeah, last year after teaching these like crazy boot camps, when I saw the, um, the people who came on the ship and I saw that many, many of them were well over 60 years old. I mean, you'll be sitting at a dining table and sometimes you realize you're talking to somebody who's like 92. Like, they're not interested in taking a boot camp class. Uh, so I did teach one class that was specifically about fixing your posture and how to strengthen up the weaker muscles that give us poor posture and stretch the tighter muscles that give us poor posture. And I was thrilled. The turnout for, like, the first class I did of that, there were, like, 60 people that came out for that class. And it was on the 18th floor, and there were no elevators. So those people really huffed it to go learn how to have better posture. So I give them credit. But we also spoke on an athlete panel that was outstanding. It was Giacomo and myself, Robert Cheek, Larry Krug, and Matt Fraser. Yeah, and we actually ended up teaming up with Matt Fraser of No Me Athlete, and we put together a kind of huge course. I believe it ended up being called the Plant-Based Body Transformation. And it's essentially a course teaching how to figure out and calculate your own macros, how to track your food to hit those macros, strength training programs for gym or home to help you lean down and improve your body composition on a fully vegan diet that has a lot of flexibility within it. So we'll leave a link for that in the description notes here. But yeah, we put a lot of work into it. So we'll leave a link for that down in the show notes and I definitely recommend that you check it out. Also, you know, stay on the site for a while and check out some of No Meat Athletes' other courses because they have tons of them and they're very informative, written by lots of experts in the field. One thing I really like about this cruise is that there are just so many different teachers out there, lecturers, people with just different ideas on how to consume a plant-based diet, basically. And, you know, I think we get so wrapped up, Danny and I, in what we do, you know, and it's easy to kind of have tunnel vision on the, on, you know, our flexible dieting approach to diet philosophy and, you know, obviously like the way that we feel 
athletes can potentially perform better by way of eating according to their goals uh, in a flexible fashion. But, you know, on this cruise, there's all sorts of different per people out there, you know, and some people are in it just for health, some people are in it for fitness. And, you know, there's, there's also with that, you get different diet theories. And I guess that leads us into our topic for today, which is the ketogenic diet and how that pertains to vegans. It's a good idea to have all of your ducks in a row in case anything is to happen to you. And I started doing some research and I actually came across this company called Health IQ. And they're a life insurance agency that actually offers savings to very healthy people like vegans and people who lift regularly. And I thought that that was really cool. So I started doing some more digging and learned some interesting things. So some things I didn't know were that vegans have 15% lower risk of all-cause mortality. Vegans have 34% lower risk of female-specific cancers. And people who strength train at least twice a week have 41% reduction in early death from heart disease compared to people who don't lift. Um, but when you think about it, oftentimes we end up paying the same prices for insurance as people who are a lot less healthy. And this life insurance agency, Health IQ, actually can save you quite a bit of money if you go and take their Health IQ quiz and, you know, prove to them that you're vegan and you lift and you're healthy and they take you all the way from the beginning of like taking that quiz all the way through starting an application and underwriting the policy and all of that stuff that, you know, can be quite overwhelming. They kind of hold your hand all the way through that. And I personally just think that that's really cool. And it's something I didn't know about. So I thought maybe I could pass this information on to you guys. And, you know, perhaps it could help some of you out if you were thinking about doing this, but you weren't really sure uh, if you're going to go that route. This is definitely a cool route to go. So if you want to see if you qualify, you can go get a free quote at healthiq.com slash vegan proteins, or you can mention vegan proteins when you call and talk to a health IQ agent. But definitely if it's something you've been thinking about, you have nothing to lose by checking it out. So I highly recommend going and taking a look because it could save you quite a bit of money just because you are living a healthier lifestyle. something that I guess it just never dawned upon me that there would be such thing as a, a vegan ketogenic dieter because it's almost kind of uh, it's kind of challenging I would say in some ways you well, know I mean I think that ketogenic diets low carb diets it's not a new concept by any stretch it's almost like a different name just gets slapped on it every 10 years or so there was the Atkins diet, there was the zone diet. I don't know, paleo to a degree was mm -hmm. definitely a low carb diet and now it's a keto diet. Uh, and it's huge right now, it's absolutely huge. I don't think that there's a, a fitness person that hasn't been asked this question and we are included in that. People ask us all the time like, oh, I wanna do a, a keto diet as a vegan, can I do it? And I get that question at least once a week. What about you? 
I don't know that I get it that often. And I think, you know, just on the whole, it's impossible to ignore it. Put it that way. You know, I'm not interested in it. I don't really invest too much of my time and energy into paying attention to the, the keto, I'll call it a fad, I guess. But I mean, it's not really a fad because it seems like it's everywhere. I, it's just not something that I personally feel uh, I want to give my time and energy to because it's not how, you know, it's not how I do it. And it's not something I would generally recommend to others. But that doesn't mean that there's not a place for it. And obviously, there's a reason to discuss it. Well, I think a lot of people think that a vegan diet is the opposite of a keto diet. Like when you think of a, a ketogenic diet, you think incredibly low carbs. And when most people think of a vegan diet, they think incredibly high carb, typically. Um, but I think if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that neither Giacomo or myself or many, many of our clients were not particularly high carb. I mean, I wouldn't say that we're low carb, but the thing is that a vegan diet literally just means we don't eat animal products. That's it. That's all it means. It doesn't mean uh, high carb or low carb or high fat or low fat or high protein or low protein or gluten-free or soy-free or oil-free or sugar-free. Like it means we don't eat animal products. That is it. So with that said, there's many, many, many ways one could construct a vegan diet and is it possible for it to be a ketogenic vegan diet well that's what we're going to talk about now, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is what is a ketogenic diet I mean we're throwing out the word low carb and I feel like that's just one of those terms that, get, that can get thrown out and you know it can be almost all-encompassing in so many different ways but let's get real let's get real definitive about ketogenic like what is it exactly okay keep well well, first, a low-carb diet is technically, I believe, described as anything where less than 50% of your daily calories are coming from carbohydrates. So most bodybuilders, powerlifters in general, I think already really easily can fall into a low-carb diet camp without even trying. Like, I wouldn't even have to try to fall into that camp. Yeah, and I mean, I do think it depends on the person yeah. as well, because some people can just some people can just survive on higher calories, where it's not even really considered low carb. I think even if you're eating fewer than fifty percent of your carbohydrates from fat, and that's just the way I think about it. But you know, then the other thing is okay. So ketogenic dieters, I guess the the loose term is that they're consuming fewer than five percent of their calories from carbohydrates. I've heard some people say as much as ten but definitely less than 10% of calories are coming from carbohydrates. But it's, it's very low. Yeah, but it's more than how many carbohydrates or how little carbohydrates you're consuming. It's the intended effect of the ketogenic diet. And basically the idea is you're winding up consuming so few carbohydrates that they're no longer a fuel to be converted into glucose. So essentially your body takes fats and converts them into what they call ketones that have a similar effect on the body that glucose do, meaning you're using fat for energy. You're using fat for energy and ketones, mainly beta-hydroxybutyrate, BHB, um, is the byproduct of being in a state of ketosis. So if you're only getting 10% of your calories or fewer from carbohydrates, where are the rest of your calories coming from? Typically, 
a ketogenic diet is a very high fat diet, somewhere between 70 and 80% of calories coming from fats and the remaining 10 to 20% of calories coming from protein. So a traditional ketogenic diet is usually very high in fatty meats and proteins, um, other fat sources like egg yolks, avocados, nuts and seeds, and green leafy vegetables. That is the main basis of a ketogenic diet. So somebody could literally eat like a, a bacon and cheese omelet with a couple of spinach leaves multiple times a day, and that would be, could be a ketogenic diet, you know, fried in butter and all that jazz. So when you think of a vegan diet, that's a lot of beans, grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, fruits, vegetables. That does sound like it's quite the opposite. But can it be done? It absolutely can be done. And to do it right, actually, we're looking at not necessarily consuming 5% of your calories or less from carbohydrates. We're actually looking at getting in under 50 grams of carbohydrates on a daily basis and preferably around 20 to 30. And I think that's an important distinction to make because when people sell the ketogenic diet to the public, they want to sell the idea of just eating a certain way, but to actually have the intended effect, we're looking at far fewer carbohydrates, I think, than most people say you should be consuming to, to be in a ketogenic diet. So... I- The very, very short answer, can you do this as a vegan? Yeah, you can. What we want to talk about is, would you want to? Like, what are the pros and cons of doing this? And I say this as somebody who has done it. So I've done it um, because I am a firm believer in always experimenting and always trying out all sorts of things on myself and or Giacomo before we ever... Uh, But just to see for ourselves sort of how things feel, how things go, we would never prescribe something for a client that we hadn't actually been through ourselves, really. Um, So yeah, I know that it can be done. I definitely had my carbs below 50 for a while with very high fat and pretty much the same protein. So I actually think my protein was a little bit higher than uh, a traditional ketogenic diet when I did it. But I'll give you a spoiler alert real fast here. Calorie for calorie, and this is key, when calories were equated, I did not have any better fat loss results on a ketogenic diet than I did on my regular bodybuilding diet that was higher in carbs and lower in fats with about the same amount of protein. So there's, there's my little spoiler alert there. But okay, should we, should we start by talking about the pros? I think we should start by talking about the pros because I think most vegans just really hate the, even, even the idea of a ketogenic diet, and I get it. But let's talk about what some of the benefits from it may be. Then we'll talk about the cons. And you guys can sort of make your own decisions by either you know, listening and thinking critically about what we have to say, or, you know, if you, should you ever decide to give it a shot yourself, I definitely think that's the best way to learn. But okay. What, what might some of the pros of a ketogenic diet be? I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm going around in my head over and over again. I feel like there's 
there's one clear major pro to it. I can't really think of any other one. So I'll just go out and say what I think is the benefit of doing a ketogenic diet. And that would be being able to stick to your diet. For some people, eating a high-fat diet can be satiating and it can make them have an easier time adhering to their caloric needs for the day. For sure. And actually, that's what a lot of the studies have shown is that if you equate calories, right? So if you have two groups of people eating in the same caloric deficit, one person doing a more standard sort of moderate carb, moderate fat, moderate protein approach on another group doing a ketogenic diet, the ketogenic dieters were actually able to stick to it a lot better than the more traditional dieters, which I found to be very interesting. And I think about like, why might this be? Why? One, I do think that the higher fat diet with, you know, you're not getting much in the way of carbohydrates, obviously, but many of the carbohydrates that you are getting are coming from fiber. So we have this super high fat, moderate protein with some fiber thrown in. That's going to be more filling, right? Then let's say you have the other camp where they could eat, um, what's a good example? Like a like a Snackwells. Do you guys remember Snackwells? This is the second time I've mentioned Snackwells to somebody this week. Do you remember Snackwell cookies? The green label? Anything yeah. with the green label? It was like was, in the 90s. It was good. <laughs> they were essentially like diet cookies and like diet hostess cake type things. They were pretty tasty, but they were low in calorie. But it's kind of like when you eat an Oreo, like who eats one Oreo? You want more Oreos. Um... So even though they were low in calories, they are pretty palatable. So you want to eat more of them. And I think that just makes it harder for a lot of people to stick to in general, because those foods typically, in my opinion, taste better than just high fat, but no sweets food. We think of food that's really high in fat as being really tasty. And it is, but it's typically tastier when it's mixed with something sweet. Then it becomes a hyper palatable food. Good point. So I, I don't know. It's just a just a theory, but the the data shows ketogenic diets are kind of easy to stick to. The other benefit, I think, for a lot of people is just that you would have more stable blood sugar. Um when you're in a caloric deficit in general, it's kind of hard to spike your blood sugar high anyway because your calories are just never quite high enough to get a crazy blood sugar spike. But when you're essentially eating no carbs, <laughs> more or less, uh, your blood sugar is going to be a lot more stable. And although I would argue that your overall energy will be lower, there won't be spikes and crashes. So a lot of people do really like that sort of evenness that they feel. So it's worth it for the, the slight hit in energy levels if your energy is more constant. Okay. Um, another potential benefit, and I think this is more for uh, people not already watching their diet. So like if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably somebody who already kind of pays attention to what they eat at least. But for somebody who's just, just, just getting into fitness, I think that just the emphasis on adding some fats 
lowering the carbs and especially, especially, especially increasing the protein. Because although we just said only 10 to 20% of your calories would come from protein, for a lot of people, that's an increase right there. So people that are just getting into fitness for the first time and try something extreme, which I would argue a ketogenic diet is extreme, in my opinion, they do see very impressive results immediately. Uh, and I think, I personally think that largely has to do with increasing protein for many people. Um, so they get a lot of immediate results from that. Another way people get immediate results is that carbohydrates hold water, folks. Um, think of carbohydrates as little dried out sponges and when you eat them, they like suck up the water in your body. So when you cut carbs, you essentially burn through all of your stored carbs, your stored glycogen, and with that goes that water. So you can see a really impressive drop on the scale in the first week or two just from cutting out all of the carbohydrates. That's right. So like short term, it's very, it's very encouraging to want to adopt a ketogenic diet. And let's be real here. Like how many people think of the word diet as a lifestyle? No, they usually think of it as a transformation over the course of 8 to 12 weeks or whatever it is. Whereas obviously we're talking about something that's sustainable and that's how we're thinking about ketogenic diets. It's funny, I remember when the Atkins thing started to blow up back in the, what was it like? I mean, it was, it was started in the 70s, but it started to blow up in the 90s. And I remember all my friends being like, I'm going to drop 10, 15 pounds because I'm going to do nothing but eat meat and no carbs and whatever. And it was like, and they did, and they dropped a whole bunch of weight, but a lot of it was water weight, but, but they didn't even care. They just liked to see the number on the scale go down temporarily. But of course, a month later, when it went back up almost the exact same place because it was unsustainable uh, behavior around, you know, with food, <laughs> they... Uh, they just decided to want to do it again in a month or two from now. And it's kind of like, I don't know if that makes sense. Right. You're just throwing around all this water weight and thinking you're losing actual weight. And it creates this like, you know, people try it. They can only sustain it for a really short period of time because it's hard. And, you know, they lose, like you just said, 10 pounds in two weeks. Holy crap. But then they can't sustain it. So they quote unquote fail and fall off. And, you know, they eat the bread or whatever. All the weight comes back. And they're like, man, that... That keto diet, that was the answer. I should have just stuck to that when really it was a caloric deficit coupled with the fact that, you know, they lost all this water weight from cutting carbs. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's kind of, it's kind of a pro and a con because I do think that there are certain people that they need to see fast changes at first in order to stay motivated to stick with anything so as much as we, Giacomo and I, we like love slow, sustainable methods, we really do. We also understand that for some people losing a pound a week, that is not motivating to them. They need to lose, you know, five pounds in the first couple weeks in order to have the fortitude to keep going. Uh, this, la this last pro that I have here, it's kind of a manipulation of data and I see it a lot so I definitely did want to mention it is that a lot of the research shows that a ketogenic diet can improve someone's HDL so their high density lipids their good cholesterol so it increases their good cholesterol but what they fail to mention is that it also increases their bad cholesterol 
And although yes, we do want our total cholesterol to be below a certain number, a lot of it comes down to the ratio of high cholesterol to low cholesterol. So if high is going up, but low is also going up, I don't, I don't think that's really a good thing. We wouldn't need crazy high numbers of high density cholesterol if we didn't have really high, low number, high numbers of low density cholesterol. Uh, it's kind of like when you meet somebody who's like, dude, I put on 15 pounds of muscle and it's like, yeah, but you put on like 40 pounds of fat, friend. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like that. So uh, yeah, I don't know, just, just some interesting stuff. But I do, I do think there's some benefits to eating pretty low carb for um, certain types of diabetes. And of course that's way out of my scope, but it's just something that I've uh, witnessed. And I definitely think that it's probably something worth trying for somebody who has really, really unhealthy levels of, of sugars. Although usually when somebody has very bad blood sugar and type two diabetes, a lot of times there's heart problems there as well and I don't necessarily think that a super high fat diet or high protein diet would be particularly beneficial for them. Um, so yeah, definitely something to chat with a doctor about, but something to consider at any rate. All right, let's talk about some of the cons. I feel like I've been talking a lot, so I'd like to hear your thoughts here. I think the biggest con to the ketogenic diet is a lack of energy, honestly. Like who cares if your energy is even keeled if it just sucks, you know? And also, why wouldn't you want a spike in energy before you trained and a surge of energy after you trained to recover, I guess is where I see holes in this way of dieting like you that's what you want that's what you want as an athlete you want to be able to perform and recover so um, I guess like in one sense I understand the potential benefits of dieting this way as a lifestyle even if it's extreme but in terms of furthering yourself as someone who's athletic minded or physique minded or both I guess that's why I have a hard time seeing the value because to me it's all about what's going to make me a better athlete. And I think for a lot of people, I agree with you, by the way. Um, I think that if performance is the goal, if performance is the goal, I don't think a ketogenic diet is particularly helpful. But for a lot of people who try a keto diet, performance is not the goal. Weight loss is the goal. Okay, so we're talking about weight loss, but is weight loss the only goal or is it their physique? And in my opinion... It's almost always physique, whether or not they, whether they are fixated on a scale or not, like it's still at the end when that, when they're done getting where they want to on the scale, they want to see their body look a certain way. And here's the deal. Like if you're not able to train effectively, uh, if your muscles aren't able to get a good pump, who cares how much, you know, how much smaller you get if the end result is like you can, there's no, there's no end result there. Like you're not going to get the physique you're looking for necessarily. Well, I think a huge, huge con, a huge con to the ketogenic diet is a severe lack of micronutrients. I think that's huge. You cannot have a variety of vegetables, fruits, beans, grains. You just can't have that and 
fit a ketogenic diet requirement. So think of all of the fruits that you're excluding. Think of all of the beans that you're excluding. Think of all of the fiber you're excluding and all of the benefits that we've seen fiber to have. Like if I see one more study that says, wow, fiber's really good for you. Like I'm going to rip my hair out. Like no shit. Haven't we, we've done this. We've figured this out. Let's Let's move on to some other more pressing studies. Like it's, it's one of those things that's such a no brainer. Yes. Fiber is incredibly good for you. Um, and a ketogenic diet sorely lacks in fiber. Even a vegan ketogenic diet. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think so. I mean, a vegan ketogenic diet is in my opinion, argue, no, it's not even arguably healthier than a regular one. No, like, no, it is healthier than a regular ketogenic diet. It has no dietary cholesterol and it is going to be higher in fiber, but you're still passing out on huge parts of the food pyramid that are really, really important for overall health, in my opinion. And for somebody who's just, you know, sort of walking in off the street that wants to try and lose weight, I think that learning how to include fruits and vegetables uh, is so important. And I feel like it's kind of like a step of learning that someone who just goes straight into a ketogenic diet is never really going to get. And then further, it solidifies this idea in their mind that fruit is bad for you, that fruit makes you fat, which is kind of enraging to me. And I say that as somebody who for prep, I, I end up having to forego a lot of fruit at the end of my prep simply because the carbohydrates are too high for me, but I'm under no illusion that fruit makes you fat or is bad for you. Fruit is outstanding for you. It's just for short periods of time, you might have to watch your carbs, but that's sort of part of the learning process, right? And you just kind of skip over all of that when yeah. you go straight keto. I mean, it's the age-old question of, all right, we get it. Calories in versus calories mm -hmm. out. And the the fewer calories in and the more calories out equals weight loss. And, and I think for the most part, listeners to our podcast get that. Mm -hmm. But they come to us because they're like, all right, well, I understand that. But how do I stick to fewer calories? What's What's the deal? And like, obviously, I think... People understand like we take a balanced approach, but it's more than just that. I mean, there are tools and tips and tricks and we're like sort of evaluating this particular way. But yeah, I mean, it's just so restrictive. It's like, let's just take, let's just keep switching between carbohydrates, fat and protein and figure out the next macronutrient to attack and restrict mm -hmm. while going, uh, you know, we're going hard on the other two. And I mean, how many decades on end have we been doing this? I, I just can't believe it's we're almost in the year 2020 and we're still trying to restrict a single macronutrient. I, it's just mind blowing to me. Well, another another thing that I think is actually potentially dangerous, like immediately dangerous about a ketogenic diet is the fact that, like we mentioned earlier, carbs hold water um, and they keep us hydrated. You know, having water in our bodies keeps us hydrated. When you're following a, a super low carb diet, your body's not really holding water very well. So you're passing a lot of it, which also means you're pretty thirsty because you're not holding on to water a lot. There is a high risk of having electrolyte imbalances if you don't actively make sure that you're somehow getting in like sodium, potassium, um, mainly sodium and potassium. Uh, so part of it, 
you know, a lot of people who are, are extreme enough to go full keto, they don't want to add salt to their food. So I would say definitely add salt to your food because electrolyte imbalances, they are very dangerous. They're incredibly dangerous. So I just think that's somewhere where the diet itself is a little bit low in electrolytes, but more than that, it's low in an ability to retain proper water electrolyte balance in your body. I think something else worth mentioning is the entry point for this way of dieting is pretty challenging. You know, I would say it takes a solid two weeks before your body even learns to start using fat somewhat effectively. Ooh, so yes and no. I'm going to jump in here. Okay. So I think ketogenic diets have this super all or nothing mentality. I'm in ketosis or I'm not in ketosis. When you're in a caloric deficit and you're in that deficit for an extended period of time and you are tapping into body fat stores, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of the point. Mm -hmm. Whether you're eating moderate carbs, low carbs, no, it doesn't matter. When you're in a deficit and you're tapping into body fat stores, we are visiting a state of ketosis sometimes multiple times a day. You might not be staying in it for a full 24 hours at a clip like you are on a ketogenic diet, but we're still getting there even in a regular, um, more macronutrient balanced dieting approach. If you took me at the end of prep, I was definitely not on a ketogenic diet, but I was definitely in a caloric deficit and I peed on a stick. I would have been in ketosis more often than not. And I even recognized it cause I could like taste it. Your mouth kind of tastes different when you're in a state of ketosis. Metallic. Yeah. It tastes kind of metallic and I could feel it when it was happening, even though I was still eating more than twice um, the carbohydrate recommendations for a ketogenic diet. So again, you just, you think like, oh, I have to follow a ketogenic diet to get into ketosis. But honestly, if you're losing body fat, you're probably touching ketosis a few times a day, which I think is really interesting. And it's not something that really occurred to me till this past prep. And I started to look it up and I was like, yep, that's exactly what's going on. Even though I was eating well over the amount of carbohydrates so in other words, the deeper you get into the tail end of a severe caloric deficit, it's going to happen parts of the day anyway, just right. by default. Right. Right. So just this is a side note. One of the really popular supplements that I see sold now is ketones. You can buy ketones. So now that we've kind of explained what ketosis is, how, uh, how bizarre is that? Like you're buying a byproduct of being in ketosis and taking it. It doesn't put you in ketosis. It's just taking the byproduct of ketosis. Okay, so you grab these raspberry ketones or whatever they are and you ingest them and they just make you better metabolize fat? No, I don't think I don't think they do anything. It would be like <laughs> I was trying to think of like a good analogy for this and I can't really come up with anything. It would be like buying bags of dead leaves to try and make fall come faster, but it doesn't make sense to ingest the byproduct of being in a caloric deficit to make that happen. Like, so if anybody out there is wondering, uh, eating ketones is a waste of money easily. Um, but I think, I think the biggest downside to following, a, a, a super low carb, high fat diet, the biggest drawback is that it's unsustainable. Like 
I understand why people would want to use something like this for a very short-term goal. Like a very short-term goal. Like I want to look a certain way for my wedding. I want to look a certain way for vacation. I want to do a photo shoot. I can understand why people would go this route for that. But to do it for a sustainable fat loss goal does not make any sense because you will eat carbohydrates again. Like find me somebody who has committed to never eating carbohydrates again for the rest of their life and I'll show you a liar. Like it will happen. So what do you do from there? It, it's almost like when you do decide to start eating carbohydrates again, a lot of people experience binging when they have carbs again because you know sugar in many ways acts like a drug in the brain. And when you haven't had it in a long time, you're a lot more sensitive to it when you do have it. So the rate of weight gain for people that have stopped a ketogenic diet is enormous. Yeah, and I mean, it's obviously, I think if we're being real here, I think it's somewhat more challenging as a vegan versus a non-vegan to do a ketogenic diet, but then like they're both equally as unsustainable. From a health-based standpoint, the vegan ketogenic diet is more sustainable, I guess is my opinion. Because if you're gonna do nothing but eat meat all day long, could you imagine the dietary cholesterol coming into your system over and over again? You can't possibly metabolize that all. Like how healthy can that be for your body? Like forget the mental challenges, forget the mental challenges of a ketogenic diet, you know, because obviously I think as a, as a non-vegan, it's, it's probably a little, like food-wise, it's probably a little easier, but who the hell would want to eat like that in the first place, is my opinion. Yeah, I think that from like a, a social standpoint, a vegan ketogenic diet is a lot harder because yeah. you, uh, obvi obviously we do not recommend this, but you could walk into McDonald's and get a bunch of cheeseburgers without the buns, and technically that would fall within a ketogenic diet. Whereas you would have a really hard time walking into any restaurant and just getting tofu and vegetables. Like, at least where we live, that's not common. And that would literally be essentially your only choice going out. Would be like tofu, avocado, and vegetables. And that even might be pushing the carbs right there. So, I mean, I don't think it's sustainable at all. And it's worth mentioning that the American Heart Association has basically said that there's not enough evidence at this point to say that it is a healthy diet long-term, which to me is, is pretty telling. Uh, I think probably very soon it will come out that no, this is not healthy long-term. But I do think that there are some, there are some things we can take from this. Like I, I don't like saying something is all good or all bad. I think there are some things that we can take from this. And I think one of them is that like, you can for, a few days if you want to go ahead and like limit your carbs quite a bit, you know, replace them with lots and lots of produce. So, you know, technically this wouldn't fall into a ketogenic camp because it's not super high fat, but you could pull out carbs quite a bit if you, for example, knew that you were going to have a big celebratory weekend of eating out. There are ways that you can pretty easily compensate for these things during the week that can help make it so you can sustainably have celebratory weekends without dealing with a lot of fat gain from that. Like when you know how to manipulate your food and how to manipulate your macronutrients, 
now you know that you could, you know, lower your carbs for a couple days, add some fat, that's going to make it more filling according to the data and enjoy your weekend without having to be super, super strict. Right. Or even increase your protein a little bit or increase the fiber content in your diet by consuming more fibrous carbohydrates. Like the thing, the elements that work from a satiety standpoint in, in a ketogenic diet, you can apply them to your daily dietary needs in a sustainable fashion instead of going like totally extreme because like more is not necessarily better. And I also think that just like the things that you, you, I remember, like you said, back when Atkins was huge and I remember when everybody and their brother was reading every single nutrition label and trying to figure out what had carbs and what didn't, a lot of people learned that certain things that they didn't necessarily think were really high in carbs, like were a lot higher than they thought, like pasta sauce. You don't think, oh, pasta sauce is loaded with carbs. But when you like read the label, you're like, oh, that is actually pretty high in carbs. So there's, there is an education piece to this as well as you learn what does and doesn't have really high carbohydrates so that when you go forward, you can approach like portion control from just a more educated standpoint. So you know when you go out for Italian food that when they bring you your dish of pasta, first of all, you can look at it and be like, okay, that's straight four servings of pasta right there. So you know that it's not like a normal portion. It's you're looking at probably almost 200 grams of carbs in pasta right there. Then they load it up with sauce, which you now also know has a lot of carbs in it. And then there's a side of garlic bread. And just knowing that you can make more informed choices about what you're going to eat at that dinner. Yeah, I think it's funny. You know, it's like we bodybuild, right? And so people look to us to figure out how to manipulate their physique because we do this extreme sport and we get extreme results through I'll say it again, an extreme way of being the competition prep. It's, it's, uh, it's crazy. It's something we don't recommend most people do, honestly. But that being said, that's not what bodybuilding is about. Competitive bodybuilding is a long game. You have to find a way to sustainably diet on a consistent basis to maintain your body composition and continue to perform, not just when you're competition prep and stage lean, year round and i'm not saying that you need to stay lean year round but you need to find a way to be disciplined without being militant about being disciplined does that make sense so like i guess what i'm saying here is most of our diet philosophy not so ironically is centered around being balanced because that's what's going to keep you doing this for the long term and then we apply that balance towards the competition prep so yeah, I guess, I mean, our take on it is that, no, we don't recommend a keto diet for anybody. I've never recommended the keto diet for a single client. Have you? No. No. But we, we have had to go lower carb on certain people for sure to get the results that they needed in the time frame that they needed them. But an actual ketogenic diet, uh, looking at all the pros and cons, overall, it's not something that I'm a fan of. No, I think some clients favor fats over carbohydrates and we, you know, we agree that that, that food preference is cool and all, 
but to an extent, I think we sort of negotiate with the clients and we're like, hey, we, we need a little carbs too because we want you to be able to train. But I think that hopefully we've provided you with just some food for thought so that you can make your own informed choices. And of course, we're always open to hearing what you guys think too. So you can always reach out to us on Instagram. I'm at Vegan Proteins. Giacomo is at Muscles by Brussels. We have a YouTube channel. You can reach us through our contact page on veganproteins.com. However you want to reach us, it's a conversation we'd love to keep having. And I actually came across this company called Health IQ, and they're a life insurance agency that actually offers savings to very healthy people like vegans and people who lift regularly. So some things I didn't know were that vegans have 15% lower risk of all-cause mortality. Vegans have 34% lower risk of female-specific cancers. And people who strength train at least twice a week have 41% reduction in early death from heart disease compared to people who don't lift. Um, But when you think about it, oftentimes we end up paying the same prices for insurance as people who are a lot less healthy. And this life insurance agency, Health IQ, actually can save you quite a bit of money if you go and take their Health IQ quiz. So if you want to see if you qualify, you can go get a free quote at healthiq.com slash vegan proteins, or you can mention vegan proteins when you call and talk to a Health IQ agent. But definitely, if it's something you've been thinking about, you have nothing to lose by checking it out. So I highly recommend going and taking a look because it could save you quite a bit of money just because you are living a healthier lifestyle. Moving on to our question and answer segment today. I can barely read Giacomo's handwriting. This is from, I think, at Lindsay Paws on Instagram. How do you know when to build versus cut? Fun fact, I can't even read my handwriting half the time, but somehow Danny's better at reading it than I. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) How to build, uh, well, okay, when to build versus when to cut. That's the question. All right, well... I think this is going to depend on the person, but on the whole, I would say to earn four weeks worth of cutting, you want to be bulking for at least six months. But when I say bulking, I don't mean like just straight out, you know, gaining pounds on pounds, but like being in some sort of a caloric surplus, even if it's a modest one, I think that it's necessary to be in, uh, at the very least maintenance and preferably bulking for at least six months before you even consider dieting because at some point your body just needs to regulate itself to be able to to uh to train to be able to be healthy for you to be healthy and if you're constantly in a state of dieting your body's just not going to be responsive the way that you want it to be to lean out I also think that for somebody getting into fitness, this is a really common question. As they start to learn, they say, well, do I want to bulk or do I want to cut? So a lot of times they're already like pretty okay with the body weight that they're at. They just don't know if to improve their physique, if they should build muscle or cut. And I would say literally probably 90% of the time, I almost always recommend that people build 
first. So to build, I don't even think that when you're new, you have to eat in a caloric surplus. You just have to eat at maintenance and lift and work really, really hard. And like Giacomo said, do that for at least six months. And after six months or a year, then you can pick a more definitive direction. But just eating at maintenance and lifting for the first year of your training life, I think is the smartest thing to do. If I could go back and do one thing differently, that's what it would have been. Next question is from Jenny Bean, and it's on volume. If I can do 10 times 100 pounds and want to move up to 120 pounds, but can only get eight reps, that's less volume. Okay, so the question, because yes, this question is for my client, Jenny Harrison, who is getting ready for her pro debut. Um, and I just love this question so much. And it's a really common question. So I threw it in the jar here. The question is about volume. A lot of people know that volume is the variable most closely tied to hypertrophy or muscle growth. So volume is sets times reps times weight. So let's say somebody can consistently do their sets at 10 reps at 100 pounds. They want to move up in weight, but they know that if they move up in weight, they're gonna lose a couple reps. So their overall volume is gonna go down. And the question is like, kind of what should I do? So volume is very tied to hypertrophy, but it is not the only thing that's tied to hypertrophy. Intensity, which is the actual amount of weight that you lift, and also frequency are the other two variables. And I think in order to have volume consistently go up over time, you're going to see little dips in volume as you increase the amount of weight that you're lifting. So it is important, I think, that as you see volume go up over time, that you do see those dips. So if you're thinking about this like a chart, it would go up, 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 down, and then up, up, up higher than the initial peak, and then down, and then up, up, up higher than the second peak, and then down. And that's kind of the important thing. It's not like an increase in volume every single week, like clockwork forever. It just doesn't work like that. And the reason is, let's say you did that. Let's say you just added a rep every single time you lifted 100 pounds. In a year, you'd be doing like 60 reps at 100 pounds, which would mean that that number is so low compared to your one rep max. It would be like 10% of your one rep max, right? This is obviously an exaggeration because nobody's lifting 1,000 pounds here, but you get my point. And I think in order for it to even really count towards your volume, it has to be, I don't think there's an exact number, but the hypothesis is like it has to be at least like 30 to 40% of your one rep max to even really count towards your total volume. So you have to increase the actual load on the bar over time, but you will see dips in your volume as that's happening. I hope this makes sense. I actually want to make a YouTube video about this that has like charts and I have an idea of like a, a dire, diorama I'm going to make. To, it's going to be super nerdy, super nerdy. But I hope that that happens because it's a hard concept to explain without actually like showing it. All right, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Vegan Proteins Muscles by Brussels Radio. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you want to continue the conversation, feel free to reach out to us. We are on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. We are at Vegan Proteins and at Muscles by Brussels. And you can also find all of our coaching information on veganproteins.com. 
Again, thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Danny. And I'm Giacomo. And we will talk to you soon.